the we're the hap 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 happiest jolliest bunch of assholes this this side of Christmas. Yes. That? <laughs> that, that's what I call an opening. Certainly a new year, for sure. For anybody who's a Christmas vacation fan, you you would know that line. And and Peter, where are you where are you living now? Cincinnati, Ohio. How did you choose that? I fell in love with Kathy. Ah, that, that. that'll do it. You're probably not the only one where that that out operates. Yeah. <laughs> it's my form of mental illness. Well, that's good. Oh, well, Ohio or or being in love. Being in love. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> no, I like I, I grew up in the Midwest, so for me it was coming back again. I'd been on the East Coast for years. And I so I, are you are you planning I, to do much speaking this year? Only this way. I don't leave town anymore. Got it. I type and I talk. I, so I like the conversations because then you you don't know what you're thinking until you say it and somebody responds to it. It's it's true. I I um I, I think I I speak uh, to a number of uh, pro bono kinds of things uh, for folks who are looking for jobs, for example, and uh, they ask, well, what what is it that you would you would present on and your deck and all that kind of stuff? I said, I don't do that anymore. I said I said I said, look, I'm going to have a conversation with the, whoever the, is in the audience if it's two people yeah. or twenty. And um, I'm going to be very interested in what's keeping them up at night now and talking to that. And if I don't know anything about that, then, you know, it'll be a short, <laughs> it'll be short. Well, it, it's a political stance. All right. PowerPoint means I knew three days ago what I was going to talk to you about. <laughs> it's a statement. That's make good sure I'm never surprised. And the most bored person during PowerPoint is the one making the presentation. <laughs> and then it's a, so you, you say and I want to show up and be with these people is a stance conference yeah. organizers everywhere are crossing names off their list right now no <laughs> people will get that and and that's the advice you give them in finding a job is be who you are right otherwise what's the point of getting it Right. Yeah. So, so obviously it's when you're place. doing that, you should be who you are anyway. So, you know, exactly. it works. I remember yeah. Marion Woodman in the seventies was a very amazing writer about feminism. And, and she went up to a big conference at a podium. She said, I used to bring notes with me and I don't any longer. <laughs> exactly. And I thought, Holy cow. And that, that she was my role model. You know, you do your preparation, you think, who are these people? Right. Do I have anything to say to them? But the notion of PowerPoints is just, especially these days, it's just crazy because then every human being gets reduced to a posted stamp. Yeah. Anyway. The question is when you can, when your ability to do that or your confidence in doing that. Um, yeah, it's asking a lot. Yeah. It doesn't mean I don't get anxious or think about things. And so if people demand PowerPoint, I give it to them. And then I bash it. Verbally. Well, hopefully you're charging a lot for it, too. I don't, I don't hard charge for anything. I'm like you. I'm... <laughs> One slide. One slide. There we go. Well, are we, uh, are we, right. are we ready? We're are we ready. ready to get started? We're ready. Yeah, you ready? Okay. All right, here we go. 
Welcome to the CXR channel, our premier podcast for talent acquisition and talent management. Listen in as the CXR community discusses a wide range of topics focused on attracting, engaging, and retaining the best talent. We're glad you're here. Welcome, everybody, uh, to another CXR Recruiting Community Podcast. I am Cher, and I'm going to go ahead and welcome my co-host, Sonny. How are you today, Sonny? Great, Cher. You're just mad you didn't get to be Cher this well. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's still alive, though. Sonny's dead. She's so. crushing it. Did you get Did you get Cher's uh, holiday hit? Like she, I think she sang two lines, and then they did a DJ remix. I know. I know. It's crazy. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. Save it till next year. Uh, we have an interesting, so for those who, look, we're on LinkedIn, uh, we're no longer on the Twitter, uh, we're on Facebook. If you want to engage with us, you can grab us there. It's Career Crossroads, it's easy, Career X Roads. Uh, if you've not checked out the podcast before, it's your first time listening, uh, subscribe, jump right in wherever you are. You can go to CXR.works slash podcast. You can get uh, this episode, of course, and previous episodes and learn what's coming up. I'm also going to tell you that you can engage with us in the live chat. So if you're joining with us, on LinkedIn, there's a stream chat in there. So go ahead and uh, say hello, uh, ask some questions for our guests today, ask some questions for us. Uh, if it's a dumb question, we'll ignore it. But if it's a good one or a nice comment, we'll go ahead and add it uh, and get you included. Jerry, we've got uh, an interesting an interesting guest today that that has a little bit of history. You, you guys go back a little ways. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of one of those things that puts me back right at the beginning of, of my journey in recruiting. Um, uh, and you know, to, the context is is to me amazing. When I first got a job after graduate school, it was with an extraordinary company, Johnson and Johnson, and um, I was a little bit of a loose cannon. So I got an opportunity to do a variety of things, and um, it turns out the company had an extraordinary consultant, and and two of us who were. Uh, kind of junior members at the time in our twenties, uh, the, the the bosses just said, "You need to learn from this guy." So just follow him around and see what you can learn. And, and we did. The guy, yeah. And this is the guy. You know, uh, <laughs> obviously, many companies um, people get pissed off when the consultant comes in and tells people the same thing that uh, you know you would have done, but but you know you might not have done it. Or it might not have come across so well uh, in terms of even if you did. So uh, it was it was great to 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 learn a good deal from from Peter Block and um, and so in following his career, he's still he's still doing it and he's got a new book and that's what I wanted to talk to him about. All right. Well, uh, we, we're gonna we're gonna let Peter in. So let's do this, Peter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice. Nice memory of those days. And <clears throat> you were very young, and I was also very young. I was probably four years older than you. And I thought you were only four years older because if you're much older than that, it starts to get a little bit, little bit uncomfortable. But that's all right. And if I'd known J and J had valued me that much, I'd have loved knowing that. But nice to hear it now. Well, you could have raised your rates. <laughs> no, they're pretty high. <laughs> 
Peter, for those before we jump in, before for those who may not know you or who, who have uh, not been fortunate enough to hear about you or see any of the materials that you have created for the world, uh, how might you give us kind of a little bit of a, an escalator pitch about who, who is Peter Block and why should we be reading what Peter writes down? Why should we be listening to what Peter has to say? I, those are very complicated questions. You know, I, I uh, was on my way to be a systems engineer with IBM. And I, they offered me a job. I said, why did you offer me a job? They said, well, you're tall and you have a good handshake. And I thought, this bodes well for my future. Just stand up and keep squeezing. And then I professor stopped me and he said, there's this field called organization development. I think you'd like it. And uh, I was stunned and I paid attention to him. So I studied organization development in graduate school. And then I made a living at that. Exxon hired me and we did team building. We did T groups. And uh, it was a gift to me. It gave me something that I cared about that I knew how to do and could make a living, which is, and that was in my 20s. And most people don't get there so much later. And then when I was 40, uh, you know, we had our own firm. A guy said, we, you should write a book about consulting. I said, leave me alone. <laughs> and uh, six months later, Peter, you should really about it. Leave me alone. And he said, look, I'll, I'll guarantee you $20,000 in royalties if you write a book about consulting. And I said, you got yourself an author. And I wrote the book. I finished the book. He went out of business. So the book sat for another year. Anyway, what? The transformation for me was that the book did well. And uh, I realized my ideas meant something. I thought I just had to be there. I thought it was my making eye contact. And, and so then I, maybe in 95, I got involved with some community people, city managers, and I fell in love with what they were up to, which was civic engagement. And so I said, well, how do we take organization development stuff that we've been doing? I've written a few books on it and bring it into the civic arena. And so since then, that's been my world. And uh, trying to create what you're doing in the organizational realm, in the community realm, neighborhood realm. You know, I, and I kept writing, the books did fine. And I realized maybe that's what I should be doing. And it's been nice because now I can still do that, even though I'm you know, not wanting to go anywhere anymore. Or, or stuck in Cincinnati. Yeah. There you go. Stuck in Cincinnati. <laughs> you, you couldn't resist. Anyway, so it's been, you know, and then every once in a while, because somebody comes along and changes your mind, and that's always a gift. And so I met a philosopher along the way. I met a tennis teacher, Tim Galway. I got involved with Gestalt therapy early on. That's where the consulting book was just my taking Gestalt therapy and applying it to workplace. And, uh, that's my story. There you go. It's a so good you, story. You've got you've got a new book out, and Jerry, I don't know if you yeah. want to do a little intro because you're you're, you're yeah, working your way through this book. You love it. Yeah, I love the book. So there it is, <laughs> activating for the common good, activating the common good uh, by Peter Block. And so I've been uh, fascinated, obviously, by community for a long time. It it really was why we founded. Uh, career crossroads uh 20 some odd 30 almost 30 years ago now 
And for the last 20 years, uh, we have basically been building a platform around that. And with Chris in place right now, it's obviously much of it is online and, and much of it was intuitive. And, and as I got heavily engaged with this issue, I started reading and, and what I found was that most of the, most of the knowledge about community, true community really comes from outside of business and, and organizations. It typically focuses in on um, towns and cities and regions and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we're playing with trying to build a community of people who are professionals who work in employ for employers, but telling them that cooperating and sharing and raising each other's boat <laughs> raises all boats and, and, and everybody wins. Um, in a world that's much more geared towards competing and saying, oh, what I have is so proprietary. I need to, I need to, you know, huddle around it and not let anybody understand what I'm doing. And I'm going, no, it doesn't work for me that way. So, so when I, when I finally, I, and I actually, I've read a couple of your books, uh, Peter, uh, on community, but this one, this one, I think you, you're hitting the, at least the, the, the target that I'm looking at because you're describing more how, what are the components of community that, mm -hmm. that either are aligned with or in some way counter aligned with uh, what we might believe about business. Um, and I, th and I think it's, it's a, I think what you're doing is dispelling some of the myths of business that that it is, you know, the, the intensity of our competition with each other at every level that uh, that that's winning as opposed to the kind of cooperation within the framework of those who can move us forward that that makes for success and and it it seems to me that you're combining the organizational behavior kinds of background that you've had with some of what you've learned from the community side and I, I'm seeing, or at least I'm trying to consume this in a way <laughs> to see a new structure uh, of what we might be able to do, or at least promote to our members who want to have a more cooperative environment for themselves. And I do think the pandemic has forced a lot of people to rethink what it is they actually want out of the next few days, hours, months, years, exactly. or what have you. And so mm -hmm. I think the timing is perfect for this. I have, so, so to ask a question, um, when, you, when you look back at, um, at, at businesses and look at that business perspective that you're describing in, um, in your book, what are, do you see as the, the strongest issues, if you will, or the distinctions about the common good that that we really need to either um, work around or or continue to promote. You you mentioned a number of them in your yeah. in fourth chapter. I, love I would I'd be interested in what you think has the highest weight for you. 
Well, the uh, <clears throat> part of the point of the book is that our narrative that we believe in, our perspective, drives our actions. And so if people want to create an alternative organization, they need to think about how they're thinking. And right now, the business perspective is one of speed, scale, cost, uh, efficiency, competition, individualism. And so I think if, we, if we're waiting for the larger institution to change its mind about that, it'll never happen. And so what the book is about is to say that what, what we were waiting for from others, which we call traditional activism, why don't they change? Whether it's top management, when you consult, oh, everybody wants to talk about their boss's boss. And uh, we think they're powerful. We think they have the capacity to create a different culture. And we're waiting for that to happen. And they collude with that by doing surveys and asking us how we feel about our boss. And so they all, and what that does, it steals accountability from a culture. The business case for giving up the business case is to create a culture of chosen accountability. And that happens. A business case for the business case. Yeah, for the business perspective. The business perspective is, is that's, to me, too narrow is to say speed, scale, cost, and convenience are everything. So and technology is going to get all that stuff. And now you're working with the human side of the business, recruiters, and their job is to invite people into a culture in which they'll stay, be happy with. And so business in the business perspective, their narrative would say, why should I give up scale competition? The reason is you want a culture where people feel accountable for the well-being of this business. And too often, HR colludes with the notion that people are only accountable for the well-being of their career. Hmm. And arguing against the notion that career is an adequate motivation, upward mobility steals our sense of freedom and choice and accountability, and it hurts the business. And if you look at successful businesses, they don't operate on the basis of pure competition. They find ways to get people to care for something larger than their career. And, and so the book does, doesn't talk specifically about recruiting, but it says that why don't you decide for every room you're in to operate that in a way that that's the place you want to inhabit. And so it lists out protocols and I call them common good protocols. So every time we have a meeting, instead of an agenda and PowerPoints and a list and a rectangular table, we sit in a circle. And we start the meeting by saying, would you break into groups of three and talk about what you want to get out of this meeting? So I'm treating you as a creator of the meeting instead of a consumer of the meeting. And so the, the extension is leader as convener, bringing citizens together, employees together. If the recruiting group wants to, keep employees. They have to be an advocate for employees' connection with each other, not trying to get management to be a better mentor, a better parent, a better colonialist, a better patriarch. <laughs> and, and so that's what the book is about, is to say to citizens and employees, if you really want to create a culture of accountability, if you really care about the well-being of the business, then you have to deal with each other and come together in a alternative way. And my, I always thought I was a facilitator 
And what we're doing is teaching facilitation skills, teaching consulting skills. And now I realize, no, this is leadership. It's not facilitation. And I think the pandemic lifted the veil of what was always there. We're deeply isolated. Mm -hmm. And we are going to a place every day that we have ambivalence. And given the choice of not having go, thank you. I'll stay home. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it's not a question of convenience or lifestyle of being able to do your laundry at lunchtime. It's a question, how do we create a culture that people will want to be there two or three days a week because of the experience they're having there. And what you, what we're a stance for is an experience that asks people to engage with each other in a way that brings them together, not compete. And it's very straightforward, very concrete. When you go to a meeting, you say, we're not going to complain about anybody not in the room. Well, that blows up half the conversation. Why don't we talk for the, you know, we're angry at marketing, we're angry at management. What's our contribution to the very thing we're concerned about? What are you talking about? Our kind? Yeah, because if I don't see myself as a player, I'm going to live my life helplessly as an employee. And it breeds a culture of entitlement. So what activism in this case means, it's called relational activism, is to stop acting as a consumer and start acting as a partner, as an owner. And you say, well, I can't do that. Look, and I'm, I'm just 27 years old out of graduate school. And you say, it doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do. What room are you going into next? And then how do you initiate conversations where people act as if they're agents with our contribution? Yeah. That's, that, that sparks something very interesting back when I was at J&J, because that really was my first, you know, legitimate, very, you know, real world corporation. And, and, and in each J&J facility on the front door as you walked in was the credo. And it was perceived that you, you would freaking learn what these values were as literally every day you would be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. And that if you if you wanted to be empowered, you needed to operate against those principles. And if you did, your bosses would back you up. And I I was at J and J for ten years, and I have to say that that I it. I made decisions that were not mine to make, <laughs> but I made them and operated against that on the basis of that credo. And I was fortunate enough that the people above me always supported that there was so there was something in the perhaps the leadership and or the values that yes. that were really good that's what i was doing there and uh they meant their credo every business has a credo sure. every business is committed to all stakeholders is committed to the community they don't mean it most top management's major job is managing the news. Right. That's why, that's why when they show up at town meetings, they know what they're going to say before they get there. And when they ask for employee comments, you write it down and turn it in on a card. Okay. And so, but Jay, and, and there are cultures now, there are many places now that say we're serious about this. And, and we, our goal is to live out the promises we made to each other. And that's what these protocols do is to say, if we, if we hold the meeting and ask people, what doubts do you have about what we're doing? See, in most places, if you have doubts, you're considered a, not a team player. 
But if you don't have doubts, it means you're not paying attention. And so invite doubts. And when people have doubts and ask management, what are you going to do about that? Management's job is to say, good point. I don't know. And the employee says, well, what kind of leader are you? And the manager says, good point. I got the same question. So you're trying to humanize every moment and trying to give language to what we know is all true. We have doubts. What promises are we willing to make? Well, let's make it to our peers instead of our bosses. I can manipulate my boss in a minute. My peers can see through me just as fast. And so why don't we say what promises you want to make within this circle, within these groups? And then why not focus on what gifts we have and forget about deficiencies? Performance reviews, nobody likes it. The boss doesn't like it. The subordinate doesn't like it. HR likes it because it makes it easier to rank order people for the sake of compensation. Yeah, it does. So that, that, that's there the, are a number of those, um, I think, built-in rewards for, for recruiting the kind of people that would be consistent, if you will, with a different model. Compliant. Efficient, more compliant, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. And so it seems to me that one of the kinds of conversations that ought to take place in recruiting ought to be how do we how do we uh, change that that selection criterion yeah exactly and, and have a conversation that asks the recruit what is it that you're bringing here what kind of culture do you want to create here mm -hmm. rather than tell me tell me what you're looking for what kind of culture? so treat them as a player I don't care if you've only been here 15 minutes. You're a player. And, 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 the, and, the, and you, if you consult with people being recruited, you say, why don't you decide? You have to decide, is this a place you want to be? And use this moment to decide that. It would and, seem that the onboarding needs to, would be another one where exactly. we make some significant changes very early. I, I love that. Yeah. Then instead of saying we want to learn, teach you how to adapt to the J and J culture, we use onboarding to say, well, what kind of culture would you like to participate in? I think so. I, I've had a couple of conversations in the last few weeks and just before the holidays with, um, uh, and previous to the holidays, with a couple of leaders who were really struggling with accountability of retention. Yes. Uh, sitting with recruiting. And they're really struggling with what's what's the benchmark for, you know, is it 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months, a year that recruiting should get dinged for any type of, you know, attrition that goes on. And and nine times out of 10, I think when Jerry and I talk to some of these TA leaders about doing realistic job previews or having, you know, pre-boarding conversations or how transparent are you about the organization, the culture, there's a lot of that's met with shrugs. Uh, and I just wondered, you know, does that sort of sort of fall in line with yeah. from a communication and a community standpoint within the organization, what you're talking about in your book? I don't know. And those leaders are looking for somebody to blame. Why doesn't recruitment? <laughs> and the, even the notion of onboarding implies that we're on the boat and they're in the water. OK, how do we get those people on board? Well, if you were in the Titanic, my friend you'd have been really wet. So stop talking about we, we, we're, all, we're the ship and you have to join us. And you start talking about what do we want to create together from the, from the very beginning. And 
And people don't leave because of salary. Everybody says, I got a better job elsewhere. Or, or the dog ate my homework or somebody else. They leave because they don't feel connected. Everybody can make more money someplace else. They leave because they don't feel connected. And uh, that's everybody's job from the day one, from the interview, onboarding, 30, 60, 90. And uh, how do we help them? If they stay connected, they're much better, more likely to hang in through the tough times. So, Peter, I, I think what I hear you saying is if that communal sort of relationship is founded up front with recruiting, mm -hmm. that can go an awfully long way towards the downstream, the retention. <coughs> every step makes a difference. There's mm -hmm. nothing to wait for. And if that's true, then I don't have to wait for management to change its mind. I don't have to ask to be transferred. You know, I have a lousy boss. Could you move me somewhere? Well, you're just going to recreate that boss somewhere else. You know, mm -hmm. inmates do run the prison. They decide <laughs> who I I think lunatics that could be that on. could be the line that could be the line, Chris, that we we take away with inmates can run the prison. They do run the prison. They do. I, they, I got it. Not alone. <laughs> the warden does too. And so, at every step of the way, you say, "Does this moment embody the culture, the vision we have for how we want people to be accountable?" Yeah. I want them to choose accountability. I don't want them to be held accountable. And the way they choose accountability is they begin to feel account responsible for their well, piece of the world. They belong and they're in a trusted environment. Exactly. And then and you try to change the notion of leader as convener. Two leaders convener away from leader as hero. Leader as host instead of leader as role model. Save me from role models. I like it. It's um, and I keep thinking, you know, TA is the, or talent acquisition is the tip of the HR spear. So fundamentally, one of the first steps uh, in the framework of anyone joining an organization is how we uh, approach whether we're trying to find people who are innately competitive so that we can, so that we can meet a criterion uh, that we're not necessarily in favor of, or can we can we rethink this right. and 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 populate with uh, the folks that we would like to surround ourselves with? Yes, you know, we can stay in this damn culture. Well, so, no, so we can believe in this damn culture. Believe in this. Yeah, you know, I must say, though, even the term talent acquisition, I. Yeah, I know. Okay, you say language is going to be an interesting uh, opportunity to perhaps change it to it be does. more community focused. To. Yeah, and so oh, how, and how I'm looking for people looking for me to to am I when you hire me, are you acquiring me? Then, but you know, this is this is the habit we're in. It's, well, so what, what would you what would you call that function, Peter? I don't know, uh, welcoming function. Okay. Talent talent invitation. <laughs> Something. Talent, talent some, magnets? Can be talent magnets. I, I got a great idea. I got it. Okay, you ready? Yep. Yeah. Talent X. Oh boy. 
<laughs> you didn't have you didn't know how to end your own so you i like it no no x I, anything <laughs> yeah the, the point the, I, I don't mean ex i meant just the x in your name uh anyway i i think the conversation this conversation is is the way things change not to have an answer and and, and but and, but uh, you're you're you are pinpointing the fact that our language reinforces the kind of culture yes. that that we would that is not necessarily conducive for a community correct focus. it does it begins with the language all transformation is linguistic yep power and that's why power is the ability to call it what you what you want to call it <laughs> exactly and, and yeah and, and and that's why you guys are so successful because you have offered a pathway to humanity in the recruiting industry. Well, we like to think so. That. If we no, certainly no. have been around for long enough. I, well, if you've been around, there's something who you are and the, and the belief system that you embody that attracts people. Now you offer them very practical things. You offer them all the kinds of stuff. But, they, but uh, you, you wouldn't be in business if you didn't treat them as if they're partners in creating the reason they joined. True. And, that's, and he's true. He's right. That, that well, means something. It, it does mean something. And, and we, we vacillate between, I guess, the 20,000 foot level and the, and the, you know, the, the, the trench. We, we make a point, for example, when, when an alumnus, someone who has left us, taken a break from us, uh, comes back and we, put an effort to welcome them home. Exactly. The trench is everything and it has to embody the 20,000 feet. There's no difference between the two. No, I know. It all, it all gets down hard. to this moment. It's, it's still a struggle. I, I got to tell you. It's a struggle to welcome people who abandoned you. Okay. But that has to do with your childhood. It doesn't have to do with these people that <laughs> left you. <laughs> or some other story. I'm sorry. The childhood thing is way overrated. That's my community right, trauma. That's okay. my community trauma, Peter. <laughs> All of us it is. All of us it is. As soon as I went in first grade, they told me I had to compete with the people I used to be friends with. So, anyway. so are you getting uh, calls from folks who are in corporations from the same, you know, from an organizational behavior point of view, there's this whole transformation world that every company is obviously in transformation every every day, and and I'm I'm curious whether or not your writing and activities these days is more focused on on different aspects of of that business or or similar. Most of my language is focused on the public civic arena. Got it. That's what activating the common good. Sure. And the subtitle is, is citizens reclaiming control of their collective well-being but it all came from organizations and when i was working in organizations that was the they there was a deep longing for connection for team building oh, without a doubt i made a living at j and j for a decade yeah asking marketing manufacturing research to come together and the things they it argued about were amazing time. I, I will tell you, it was an extraordinary time. And I, yeah. I reflect on the 10 years I was at Johnson & Johnson, wondering how far ahead they were 
in how they um, elevated, if you will, and empowered the, the, the individual worker versus, you know, where we are today. So I just well, find that fascinating. And, and right now, we don't need the worker so much. That's what that, it's the people aren't any different. The longing's still there. The demand for who you are, who I am is still there. And there's, there's still a lot of talk. Unfortunately, that gets commodified also under the title of change management. Yeah. Which and uh, people don't resist change; they resist coercion. And Peter's full know. of t-shirts, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch. I'm gonna have to watch this show a couple times just for the just for the sidelines. <laughs> If you if you have a good if the idea is good enough, you don't have to come up with anything new for decades. I think the symptom is the fact that people are ambivalent about coming back to work. Now the way it and I think the longing is still there for connection. Well, I, and I, the nice thing is it also leads. I think what happened be better. In, in my opinion. Peter, what, what the pandemic did is it forced us uh, to stop compartmentalizing mm. our lives in terms of work and friends and family and whatever, because we we did them at different ways, different times, and we had to have a different headset. And, and since we were working from home, we had to figure out how to blend a variety of different kinds mm. of things. And now that we're past the pandemic, we don't want to give up the ability to to have control, to be empowered, to blend our life mm -hmm. with work, with friendships, with family, with whatever, so that we we lead our best life. And, and I, that's why really would, what the intention is right now. And why would I choose to go back to a place whose primary job was to watch me? Right. Where I had to look at the office. The office was designed. Yeah, so I, I think that we'll end up in some consciousness that people need to be connected, but they need to be connected as they do the work, not through social things or town hall meetings or water cooler sessions or survey feedbacks. That those are useless. What, what about offsites? What about big big offsites? Well, uh, I know exactly. So so, and I was a beneficiary of all that. So I. You know, thank you, Jesus. But uh, off-sites means we have to leave the premises to be together in a way we choose. Okay, what do you? Where are you? I'm off to a retreat. Well, what are you retreating from? Oh, we're going to be together. We're going to talk about how we're working together. We're going to talk about the future. Why to be in a world that I want to inhabit? Do I have to call it a retreat or an off-site? Why don't you guys invent something called on-site gatherings? <laughs> Why don't we spend every day on-site doing what we used to do as a special event? I think that's what we're going to have to call our five meetings, Chris, is on-sites. Because, <laughs> uh -huh. so, Peter, part of our model is, uh, is that uh, we do about, well, we did almost as many as 10 a year meetings in the room together they were all they were all at the headquarters of one of the members mm -hmm. so so companies would send people but they would fly in so that we would be in a corporate headquarters so we would be able to immerse ourselves in the 
culture of, of one of the members and then have conversations about that. And, um, and that, that. a lot of conversation, obviously. Well, it's smart because, uh, it, it's a answer, and you mentioned it now because we're talking about retreating as a place where we can be together. And what you were saying is we can go right to the belly of your culture and mm-hmm. be together any way we want. And what brings us closer is to talk about the <coughs> architecture of that belly, yeah. the world we're living in. Not to complain or change it, but just say, let's be honest with each other and make this a business discussion. Sure, and I remember hearing a, uh, Baba Ram Das was a yoga teacher and everybody wants to re- leave the culture, you know. And he says, no, you have to go in the fire of the marketplace. And that's where you want to create the world you want to inhabit. It's where you can decide who you want to be. And I've always felt that way. I, the darker, the more complicated the place, the more interesting it was to me. I got called by the, this, invited by the CIA all right, to do talk about empowerment to their people. And I'm not a big fan of that, not that I know what it is. And I said, yes, and it was great. They put a hood over my head. We went to Langley at, at lunchtime. They took all of their notes and locked them in a, in a cabinet because they're afraid of people spying on each other. And I thought nobody's ever valued my words as much as that moment with the CIA. See, seems to me that those three initials would give them all the empowerment they would need. <laughs> no, well, they had the same problems how to get the people, you know. But I, I, I do think that you're going to those places. I, we, we're coming to where you inhabit, and we want to be with you and talk about now what we want to create. Love it. Well, Peter, I, I want to thank you for giving us uh, the time. Uh, for those who missed it, if you're listening and not watching. Uh, on your treadmills or your stairmasters, uh, the title <laughs> of the book is "Reminders: Activating the Common Good." We'd encourage you to go check it out at Powell's.com. That's Powell's Bookstore. I think they have don't they have the largest bookstore in the United States or something like that? It's, it's like a big out. one. It's a big one. It's been there forever, and it uh, I don't know symbolizes something. Yeah, I love it. I got a T-shirt from there. I love it. All right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for caring about this stuff and for what you're doing in the world. I really, Jerry, it's wonderful to appreciate, appreciate checking in maybe after 50 years, but it's, it's still, it's still worth it. We'll put it in the calendar. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. All right, guys, have a great rest of your day. Thanks everybody for listening. Okay. Take care. Peace. Thanks for listening to the CXR channel. Please subscribe to CXR on your favorite podcast resource and leave us a review while you're at it. Learn more about CXR at our website, cxr.works, facebook.com and twitter.com slash career crossroads and on Instagram at career X roads. We'll catch you next time.